Good morning. It is good to be with you all today, to behold and to become like our Savior who gave himself for us. Amen? Every Sunday is Resurrection Day, and uh, we remember and anticipate him who came and will come again. And uh, it's my joy to be with you, to be able to celebrate that, and uh, to celebrate our brother Jimmy as he is installed as uh, the associate pastor here. If you have your Bible with you, or if you don't, I think they're going to have it up here. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read starting with verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, And the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would give us faith to receive your word. Help us to not only hear, but hold on to your word, your truth, and to live them out, we pray. Give us grace now. Spirit, work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. It's no surprise to anyone here in this room, but the leaning tower of Pisa is leaning. Experts report that the 179-foot tower, which was built back in 1173, moves about 120th of an inch a year and is now 13 feet out of plumb, which is an improvement thanks to the latest attempt to recenter the building. How did it happen? What accounts for this lean? The clue actually is in the name. The word Pisa means marshy land. Research has discovered that the soil at the base of the tower consists of, listen, clay, shells, and sand. Not exactly your ideal foundation. That explains why the tower began to lean after the construction of the third level. Every expert, engineer and otherwise, will tell you that the foundation is the most important principle and part of a building, and it can guarantee either the success or the failure of a project. Jesus knew that what's true of a building is also true of our faith. The principle is the same. The foundation will determine the strength of what's built upon it. Here in Matthew chapter 7, the passage that we just read, Jesus says that what you build your life on, what you build your faith on, makes all the difference, both on this side of heaven and in the age to come. And he exhorts his disciples and all of us today this morning to be wise builders, who will invest on building our lives, our faith, on the solid foundation of Christ 
himself. So we're going to look at two things together this morning. First, let's look at the two foundations. The parable of the builders is the final illustration, if you will, in a larger body of Jesus' teaching known as a Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins back in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes and ends with a series of short parables that highlight the importance of the hearing God's word and obeying them. When was the last time you read the Beatitudes? Lovely, aren't they? I don't know about you, but for me, the Beatitudes conjure up warm, fuzzy images of precious moments figurines. You remember those? Those uh, figurines with religious platitudes or now just pithy sayings that really don't mean anything? Now let me ask you, when was the last time you read the Sermon on the Mount? Not so fuzzy, is it? I remember preparing for this sermon and reading not just the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount several times. And all I can say as I was reading through these chapters was that I trembled before a holy God who calls us to an impossible standard of faith, faithfulness, and righteousness. I trembled because of the gap between Jesus' call to discipleship and the reality called my life. Jesus says some really hard things. Let me tell you, when you sit with these words and look intently into the perfect law, as James says, you will be convicted of the truth of God's word and the sin that is in your own heart. And the temptation in those moments is to skip all of that and get right to the gospel and apply the balm to our souls. And there is nothing wrong with that. After all, the gospel is the good news. But there is something good about sitting with the weight of the law and allow it to speak to our hearts. Because unless you understand the beauty of the law and the grossness of your own sin, the gospel won't be so amazing. Grace is not going to be amazing unless you understand just how broken you really are. Now, when I say sit with the law or under the weight of the law, I don't mean that you can somehow save yourself through your obedience and observance of the law. That is not what I am saying at all. But it is good for us to understand the law for what it is a window into God's heart that reveals who God is to us. Let's turn now to the passage and let's look at his words and let's get a bit uncomfortable, shall we? Starting with Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus now begins his closing remarks. Jesus begins by addressing the general audience who would have been there, sitting perhaps at a distance, listening in. Here in verses 13 through 14, and according to Jesus, everyone, atheists or not, is on a spiritual journey. And all of you here this morning, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, you are on a spiritual journey. Many, the Bible tells us, are on a wide path that leads to destruction, and few are on the narrow path that leads to life. And he says, and those who find this narrow path 
are few. And he is intentional about speaking to the audience. And by saying this, he is asking them to reflect upon their own hearts. Sure, they're there, perhaps even curious, agreeing with some of the things that Jesus had just said on the Sermon of Mount, nodding their heads, following along. But he says, no, actually, it's not the broad road, but it's the narrow path that you have to find. And with these words, he says, look inward. Where are you? Do these words simply resonate philosophically, theologically, somewhere up here? Or do they ring true in your hearts? Do they give life? Do they breathe joy in you? And do they lead you to the truth and Christ himself? And the point that Jesus was making on that day is true today. For those of you who are here looking into Christian faith, with these words, Jesus says, check your heart. Where are you? Perhaps you've been coming to this church or some church And you've been agreeing with a lot of things that you've been hearing from the pulpit. The prayers, the songs, they're beautiful. The truth that are presented to you. You're like, yes, that's what we need. The prayer that was prayed, and I really appreciated that, brother, where he said, let us not be like the world out there, dividing over all kinds of isms. With the decay of institutions, now the tribes have been elevated, and we are looking for a place to belong. And in this day and age, with the rise of tribalism, we are quick to divide and demonize those who are not part of us, are we not? And that gets tiring. And even as you hear that prayer, you're like, yes, we need unity, we need love. But do those words lead you to Jesus? Do those words and the truth and the beauty of unity and humility and loving and serving one another, do they lead you to our Savior? Look inward because we're all on a spiritual journey. And we are confident that what you're looking for is Christ, who is the truth. And we would love to engage you more on that. Pastors uh, you know, here in this, in this church and the elders I'm sure we'd love to talk to you more, so please pull them aside and engage them on that. From there, Jesus shifts and speaks to his disciples regarding true leaders. Starting with verse 15, Jesus warns his people of false prophets, ravenous wolves that come in sheep's clothing. Externally, they look the part. They look similar to true prophets. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples to look for fruit, their way of life. Not just what's on the outside, but really what's on the inside. And finally, starting with verse 21, Jesus speaks again to his disciples, but this time regarding true believers. Like false and true prophets, externally, Christ followers and non-Christ followers can look similar. Jesus goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And look at the similarities between the two groups of followers here. First, they share orthodoxy. The fact that they refer to Jesus as Lord, Lord, uh, says a lot about their theology, theology proper, who they perceive Jesus to be, that he's not just a rabbi, 
some popular guy that everyone is flocking to, the latest trend. Rather, they understand him to be more than that. In fact, someone worth following and pursuing. Second, they're both passionate about Jesus. In Semitic languages, the repetition emphasizes something with passion or emotion. For example, you may remember the story in the Old Testament when David, the king, uh, after hearing the loss of his son, mourns for Absalom. And the text reads, Absalom, Absalom, my son, to emphasize David's grief and sorrow over the death of his son. And here they refer to Jesus, not as just Lord, but they refer to him as Lord, Lord, to emphasize passion about Christ. And lastly, they both were active in service. Jesus goes on to say that they prophesied in his name, that they cast out demons in his names, and did mighty works in his name. Yet Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? You're there. I mean, front and center listening to this sermon. And you're nodding your head like, yes, Jesus, preach. And you get to this part, you're like, wait, what? And they're looking around like, he's talking about us. Because we don't know too many people out there that did any of this. I mean, who performed mighty deeds besides us? Cast out demons? I think that's us. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. And to help them understand his message, Jesus now tells them a parable. Here's a pro tip. When reading a parable, you must pay attention to the variable in this story. The parable that we read earlier is not about a good builder who built the house to code versus a bad one who didn't. And so when the storm came, sure enough, the guy who built it to code withstood the storm and the guy who didn't, mm, not so much. It's also not about good building materials versus bad ones. Here's a guy who actually went and bought top great stuff and then this guy, he cut corners and bought really cheap stuff. The storm came, here are your results. No, it's also not about a good design that could withstorm heavy winds and storms versus poor design. It's also not about a light storm versus a heavy storm. Rather, it's about a house that is built on a solid foundation versus a house built on sand. That means this parable that Jesus tells us has everything to do with the foundation. Here is the meaning of the parable, at least on the surface level. A wise person, Jesus goes on to say, builds his house on a solid foundation. When the storm comes, the house stands. But a foolish person builds his house on sand. When the storm comes, the house falls with a great fall, the text says. You see, based on appearance, it's impossible to differentiate a wise builder from a foolish one. But storms do come, don't they? And that's when they expose the most important thing, the foundation. Let me pause and ask, what are you building your life on? 
you're either building your life and faith on Jesus or sand. There is no third option. You're building your life on the truth of God's word, lived out and given to us in the person of Christ, or you're building your life on sand. It's easy to justify building our lives on sand, isn't it? Well, it's just in the current phase of life. Look at all the demands that I have, I'm facing. Once I get past this, once I'm done with school, once I get a real job, once I settle down, then maybe Jesus says, no, you're either building your life on this solid foundation or you're not. And no matter how you justify building your life on sand, storms will come. And Jesus invites you to build your life, your faith, on the rock of his word, his grace, his truth. Let's now move to our second point, the two outcomes. The sad reality in our broken world is that storms do come. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, this has been the case for everyone. Sometimes you see the storm brewing at a distant horizon. Other times it catches you off guard. Either way, there is no way to adequately prepare for the storms of life. At least that's the way I found it. This past summer, I had uh, part one of my sabbatical. The church was gracious enough to ask, hey, do you want the whole thing in one summer, or do you want to divide it up into two summers? And I said, I'll take option number two. And uh, mid-August, I was out in St. Louis celebrating my buddy who finally got married. And I was on my way to the after party with a bunch of my friends to celebrate this glorious day uh, because we never thought this guy would get married. As I was headed to the after party, my wife called. And I thought, this is strange. On a Friday night, he had a Friday night wedding. That's also strange. But uh, I thought, this is weird that she would call me. And so I picked up the phone and uh, I asked, hey, What's going on? Is everything okay? And in between her tears, I made out the words, my father is in the ER, and I don't think he's going to make it. We found out that my father-in-law, while preparing to help his friend with a job, fell, hit his head, was unconscious, rushed to the ER, massive internal bleeding, And the surgery would be way too invasive. And so the doctor said, you need to prepare yourself for the worst. The shock, the confusion, and all the other things running through our minds, it was just, how do you quantify that? Just like that, we were drowning in a storm. The joy of celebrating my friend's wedding, joy of being with friends whom I've not seen in some time, dissipated just like that. And I'm trying so hard to find a footing in this storm. 
And that was just the beginning for us. The first domino piece to fall. And since then, it's been a very, very difficult season. I wish I could tell you that all of it somehow, you know, is neatly tied and, and the Lord made sense and answered all of our questions and here we are. No, we're still in it. We have more questions now than we've ever had. We're confused. We know what our theology says, but gosh, does that have to be this hard? You've been there, I know. Because we all live on this side of Eden. What do you do when these storms come and they expose our hearts, our faith? And why, do, why does God allow them in the first place? Does he do this so he can say, yeah, look, look at your weak faith. Look at all your feeble attempts to build your castle on sand. Shame on you. Is that why God does this? No, I don't think so. Not at all. God does not shame us. He allows these storms into our lives and expose the foundation or the lack thereof so that he can become that foundation for us. You see, no matter how well prepared we think we are, these storms will come and they will expose our faith. And it can feel like you're drowning. There's no end in sight sometimes. And you're trying so hard to hold on to the promises of God. But the good news for those in Christ is this. When the storms come, and they will, those who built their house on Christ will stand. Take a look at this passage again. Does Jesus say anything about the quality of the house and how that affects its ability to weather the storm? No, he does not. Instead, it has, no, it has nothing to do with our faith or even the quality of our obedience. You see, he's not looking for great faith or perfect obedience. He's simply asking us to build our house on him who is the solid foundation. And if you're like me and your house looks pretty messy and not quite finished because you can't ever overcome certain sins and temptations, and you're walking through this thing called journey of faith with a whole lot of mess, you can be very discouraged because you're like, well, I, I don't know if my house can withstand the storms of life. But Jesus says it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the foundation in which you build your house, period. But we often get so caught up in, well, how good am I, is my obedience? How solid is my faith? How good was my quiet time this past week? Are we giving enough? Are we serving enough? And we run through a long list of things that we should do and shouldn't do and base our faith on those things where Jesus says, no, those things, they're important. But the most important thing is that we build our house on Christ. And when we build our house on Christ, we will withstand every storm. You know why? Because he holds on to us. 
It's not us holding on to Christ during the storms of life. And sometimes it can feel like that, I know. But what you don't see is the invisible hand of God that holds on to you. And I can say the reason why I'm here preaching the word, running this race of faith, in spite of everything that happened in this difficult season, is not because I'm so spiritual and I'm holding on to God with incredible faith. No, that is not the case at all. If it were up to me, I, I think I would have dropped out, at least called a very long time out. No, he holds on to me. And I feel the presence of God. I sense the spirit of God working in my life as he breathes new life, new hope, new joy into me. Every time when I turn to the word, and sometimes I don't want to. Can I say that as a pastor? It's like, oh, man, I, okay, I guess I got to. It's a struggle. It's a fight. But when I do, he meets me in those moments. And he washes me with his presence and his word, his hope and joy in a fresh way so that I can put my foot forward and just get through the day. That's what it means to build your house on Christ who is faithful to you. He holds on to you. And all that he has promised will be real. And you will sense that when you lean fully into him. In those moments when you have nothing left and you're not sure how you're going to make it, you will find him to be faithful. There is another level to this parable. Uh, It certainly applies to everything we just talked about. But Jesus has a different storm in mind as well. In the Old Testament, storms are a symbol of God's judgment. And Jesus here uses references to God's judgment that took place in the days of Noah, where the rain fell, floods continued, and the waters increased and rose high above the earth, as Genesis 7 says. A great storm is coming. A great storm is coming. And the only one that can save you on that day of judgment is Christ, the solid rock. No matter how righteous you think you are, no matter how good and moral you think you have been, it will all wash away. Nothing on that day will be able to withstand the judgment of God. The winds will come. The waters will rise, and Christ is the only one who can speak your name and call you to himself so that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, will pass you by. And this is an encouragement all of us as God's people. Does this mean that we don't have to be faithful? No, it does not at all. Yes, we pursue faithfulness and obedience We pursue to honor God, to live for his kingdom. We pursue to hold on to the glory that is promised to us. All of those things are true. But that's not where we start. That is not the most important thing. Christ is. Start there. And let this truth wash over you. Let it be the solid foundation in your life. 
so that you don't turn inward to find strength, to somehow live out the gospel on your own. But no, you rest on Christ who has made all of these promises to you, and every day he holds on to you, gives strength and grace to you so that you can live these words out. Start there, and I guarantee you that your walk with the Lord will be different. And the call to discipleship will be joy. Sure, it's going to be hard, but he will do it. Jesus, the wise builder, that's who he really is. You read through the the Sermon on the Mount, everything is about Jesus. He's the one who does it all. He is the wise builder. And in him, we too can be wise builders who build our lives and faith on things that will last. And I want to encourage all of you to do that, and especially for you, brother, to me, as you continue your good work here in this church. I want you to know that it's ultimately about Jesus who's holding on to you. And all the promises that he made to you, they're in play. And he will be faithful. So the pressure to perform. I know the, the temptation to think that we're only as good as our last good sermon preached is always there. But this truth frees us from that. He is our rock. He will do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for being our foundation, our rock. Thank you for welcoming people like us, people who were once your enemy, people who were dead in sin and trespass to be made alive, co-heirs, partners in this kingdom endeavor, to build our lives on you. And thank you that it's really not about how good we are and the kind of houses we can build, but it's really about you and the house you're building in us and through us. So give us great hope with your word We pray in Christ's name, amen.